Singularity. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, a.k.a. Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show is David Brin. David is not only a PhD in astrophysics, but also a very well-known, award-winning, and best-selling science fiction writer of the Uplift series of novels, as well as most recently, uh, the novel titled Existence. So, hi, David, and... Uh, Thank you for being with us on Singularity One-on-One today. Hi, Nick, and it's an honor to be in the presence of Socrates and, <laughs> and his uh, forum, uh, I'm sorry, not forum, Agora, of wonderful uh, listeners and uh, thinkers. Yes, indeed. So you would be, uh, I hope, prepared uh, for some grilling then. <laughs> uh, in, in, indeed, I consider myself to be a... Heraclean. Very well, excellent. So we are of the same age. That's fantastic beginning here. So um, let me ask you this then, David. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background, but especially why and how you got interested in science fiction in general and writing novels in particular? Well, the um, my background, I grew up in Los Angeles, went to the same high school as Ray Bradbury, uh, 30 years apart. But um, the given the, given the background, growing up in the Cold War, uh, you have a certain amount of instability in your psyche. Uh, your your school teachers were saying every now and then, three or four times a year, they would suddenly say in the middle of a sentence, "Drop," and we would have to, and we would dive under the tables, um, as if that would do any good in a nuclear war. The, um, the, the, the sense of instability, um, was combined with the notion in California of always being interested in the other. Uh, very, very, the most polyglot, the most diverse, um, human civilization. Um, I like to think that the continent of North America is tilted and everything loose just rolls down into the lower left-hand corner. Um, so these are some of the seven old things in my background, and it resulted in a couple of things. First off, being very interested in civilization and why it maintains itself, why we were so lucky. And this um, manifested in my novel, The Postman, which uh, Kevin Costner loosely adapted for film in 1997. He sent out an email. Yes, there was email back in 1997 saying that they had no problems, that it was going to be a hit because their only competition in the box office was um, James Cameron's silly little remake about a sinking boat. Uh, <laughs> and you can guess whether Titanic and the, or the Postman was the iceberg um, at that particular Christmas movie season. And we can get into that if you like, but the point is that the post was written in part to deal with the notion of uh, what is civilization and what is a an individual's relationship with his or her civilization. 
And it occurred to me that all the Mad Max dystopias that we've seen, and we've got huge numbers of them now, get it entirely wrong. Uh, I believe that uh, the survivors after the fall of civilization would have one thought in their mind. And that is, how do we get it back? And it would be worth any price, any price, including their lives. You wouldn't think they would be defeated with short-term thinking about daily survival? Oh, I think some would, and I think for the daily survival would be would be important. But I was thinking of thoughts. And the number one thought that remains cogent in their mind is, this sucks. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get a toothbrush back. I'm going to get my dentist back. I'm going to get back a civilization in which I don't have to kill that guy over there. Because I'm going to. I'm going to now. I have to. I have to feed my kids. But I don't like it. And I'm going to bring civilization back before my kids get so used to this that they start liking this. Well, you know, look, I, I may be wrong, uh, but it's a perspective that was unusual. And one of the things I try to do in my fiction is take whatever cliche is out there, and try tweaking with it. It's not just me. An awful lot of science fiction writers were deeply offended 20, 25 years ago when Bill Moyers did his interviews of Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey and all that. And Campbell not only was offensive in the degree to which he claimed credit for some ethnographic studies of cultural modes and storytelling modes that had long been known and described before him. But his relentless assertion that there is only one way to tell stories and that this is the way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, just because, yes, the modes that he described were seen in many, many storytelling traditions, Moyers never asked him the hard questions like, weren't the bards and the storytellers telling this mode of story in order to suck up to the local lords because the lord is the guy who had meat on the skillet, on the, on the spit, and had all the beer. <laughs> uh, and, and the sameness of the story wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a feature of storytelling. It was a bug. So, so if I could interrupt you here, it sounds to me that you were doing what um, deconstructivists, like most namely Derrida, once said, is that deconstructionism is all about cracking nuts, finding them and cracking them. So in a way, that's what you're doing, isn't it? Well, in a sense, I, I do not think highly of the, um, the, of the, uh, of the Derridists and the Foucaultists and, and, and that lot. Um, I consider postmodernism to be, um, an intellectual fraud. But, um, that's in part a response to their own hostility toward science and science fiction. And these are two fields in which I've, I've, I've become professional. Um, the right is not the only infestation of insanity nowadays. There, there is actually a substantial amount on the far left as well. 
and I consider postmodernism to be an example of that. It's the American and Western and Periclean genius for pragmatism, for problem solving, for negotiation, for dealing with a universe that is contingent. Uh-huh. Um, look, one of the things I point out in The Transparent Society, which is my nonfiction book about, yeah. uh, about freedom and privacy in the future, uh, it's one of the only um, uh, public policy tomes from the 20th century that's still in print and still selling more every year. Um, plug. The, um, w- one of the main points th- that I make is that the great ages throughout history in these pyramidal social structures that dominated almost every human culture. And the top of the pyramid was occupied by lords and kings and feudal uh, guys who pick up metal implements and take everybody else's women and wheat. And they were accompanied by the bards and the priests who leaped and hopped and told Campbellian dramas that basically had the moral story, it's good that the Lord can take your daughters. It's good. It's right that, that his sons should inherit ownership over your sons. And the local bullies and the local gossips who, who, who um, helped them enforce their rule. During all this grand period that is so idolized in, you know, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and the descendants of Enlightenment heroes who saved us from that way of life, the Pericleans, mm-hmm. the Benjamin Franklin, Adam Smith, Abraham Lincoln, they, they saved us from that way of life, and yet the heirs of that great revolution run flocking off to tales of wizards and kings and secretive mages who have a a glass device that lets them see things far away and figure and, and learn knowledge about things, events happening far away. And they go, ooh, wow, isn't that marvelous Palantir? Let, you know, me, let me see how, how we can fit science fiction more explicitly here, specifically in that context, and ask you, because about of that age is when according to many, is the official beginning of science fiction, most notably with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, you know, clearly a sort of a pessimistic, dystopian view of our future. Uh, So uh, do you think that, as Robert J. Sawyer often says, that science fiction has been sort of negatively predisposed from the outset for most of the last 200 years, ever since Frankenstein? And do you think that science fiction writers have a responsibility um, of changing that in a way, of, of providing an alternative. Well, that's exactly the point that I was I was getting at. The um, during all of this, these epochs of earlier storytelling tradition, there were several common themes, and one was hubris. Don't you dare stick your nose in God's territory. Another was the um, crudity and hopelessness of objective reality. Uh, Jesus, Plato, Socrates, sorry, uh, Buddha, uh, Lao Tzu, Confucius, they all said that 
reality is gritty and and impossible to grapple with no matter how much you study the real world you'll never see past the veil of mara or past the entrance of the cave of plato um therefore and they're right of course they're, they, that was a true thing is as a general statement but then they always said therefore give up and seek truth through and uh, then they varied it was prayer or detachment or logic or incantations but always some hypnosis of the mind and galileo finally broke through this by saying once we the glass lens by saying we you're right my eyesight is flawed. We can never know what this physical object is, this chair, the thing I call a chair in front of me. But through experimentation and constant reciprocal accountability of the give and take of multiple viewpoints, we can find out all the things that the chair is not. And by carving away all the things that aren't true, we can pragmatically get better. Now, Mary Shelley was portraying this dissonance in her time. She was enthralled by the advances of science, and yet she was surrounded by romantics. Yeah, You know, her husband, Byron, Keats, all those guys, and romantics have always had a real rough relationship with science. They love to poke at it, but they also love the Campbellian lessons. Hubris. You know, don't stick your, if you stick your hand in, 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 in this, you will get it burned. And this is, of course, the theme that is relentlessly returned to by Michael Crichton. Mm -hmm. And it's always an attractive, an attractor, uh, in fantasy and alas, very all too often in science fiction. And this takes us back to your question. Um, especially, um, some, some of the, um, Neil Stevenson, uh, and Greg Bear and some of the other hard SF authors out there, uh, have been taking up a theme that I've long also pushed. And that is we have to have hope. Even if you're going to do a dystopia and a dire warning, it's got to imply this decision did not have to be made. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the greatest of all science fiction novels aren't don't have happy endings. The greatest form of science fiction is the self-preventing prophecy, like George Orwell's 1984, yeah. like Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, um, like... Um, uh, where late the sweet birds sang, or or um, uh, Silent Spring, or Soylent Green, uh, make room, make room by the late Harry Harrison. These so influenced the readers and the watchers of the movies that it girded millions to say, "I'm going to prevent this from happening. I'm going to devote part of my life." to ensuring that this doesn't happen. And the result is that in America, the metaphors of science fiction, 
of book burning of Big Brother. These are deeply embedded in the political arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a um, decent, sane Republican, then you worry about undue accumulations of power and authority by snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. If you're a decent Democrat, you worry about accumulations of undue authority and power leading to Big Brother by um, conniving aristocrats and faceless corporations. If you put it that way, the proper answer is, duh. In abstract, they're both right. Big Brother could come from any direction. Emotionally, this wariness is a sign of the power of science fiction uh, when it manifests in this extreme version of the self-preventing prophecy. Alas, America has lost its ability for those on the left to say, huh, well, you know, you're probably right that bureaucrats could be a threat. I'll let you keep your eye on them while I keep your, my eye on the corporations and the oligarchs. Um, in fact, liberals are capable of making that acceptance, but the right has become completely incapable of um, of saying, you may be right about oligarchs and corporations. Uh, let's talk about that, but only if you listen to me about bureaucrats. That, that's, that's the genius method of problem solving that's been destroyed by those propaganda media that are inflicting culture war and civil war upon the United States. And we can hope that that crested. So let me ask you this day, uh, then. That negativity that, that has arguably dominated science fiction for the last couple hundred years since Frankenstein, is that a result of the fact that it is supposedly easier to write negative dystopian futures rather than positive ones? Oh, it's tremendously easier, and there's a basic reason for that. Um, I'm going to switch modes now and get pedantic. Well, uh, it's interesting you say it, because Cory Doctorow extremely disagreed with me when I made that claim, so I'm very much interested to see what you're going to say in support of my my argument, my belief, well, too. Well, it's very simple. Uh, um, if you're writing a novel, you need to keep your heroes in jeopardy for 400 pages. Um, if you're doing a movie, you need to keep your heroes in pulse-pounding jeopardy for 90 minutes. That is the fundamental of storytelling, and it won't change, and it is absolute. You really have to do this, unless you're French. You know, in which case, you know, 500 pages of Proust, you know, remembering, yes, remembering smells in his kitchen, you know, that, that's somehow, you know, marvelous. Uh, I, I live in France and I never got it. Um, except for that, you have to keep your heroes in jeopardy. Now think about what that means. You live in a civilization in which your tax dollars have gone for generations to refining techniques so that you can hire people, skilled professionals, whose job it is to minimize the danger, to make sure things work. And for the cynics out there, just stand at a four-way stop sign. I'm not talking about Boston, where everybody collides, you know, (laughs) randomly, you know, in a in a Brownian motion in these four-way stops. But if you go, if you're on the West Coast and you stand at a four-way stop sign. 
and just stand there and watch for a while. And you see that people want to be civilized. They're constantly making little negotiations with each other. But all else being equal, at the big intersections, they want the stoplights to work. They want the skilled delivery of services. And if they're ever in trouble, they dial 911 and they expect and demand that the skilled professionals they pay for will arrive instantly. And let's say you dealt with the first wave of bad dudes trying to invade your home. Okay, drama. That's real drama. Scene one. You dial 911. The cops come, and they're honest and competent, and they say, wow, you did really well. Now stand back. We'll take care of things from here. That's what you want to have happen in real life. But it's a buzzkill. It sucks the hell out of drama. And it creates the fundamental um, dissonance of objective between Hollywood and civilization. And so in, in, in Hollywood, in the movies, you have to prevent skilled professionals from sucking the drama out. If you call 911, well, usually you don't have a phone or you don't think of calling 911. That keeps the action going. Or you come up with some stupid excuse for not calling 911. Yoda was really good at that. Again and again in the Star Wars series, he overruled Mace Windu when they said, Mace Windu, the only wise Jedi, uh, he kept saying, let's tell the Republic. And, and, and uh, Yoda said, tell it, we will not. And the result was pulse-pounding action and relentless stupidity. Um, the evil little oven mitt, well, probably one of the most evil characters I've ever seen. <laughs> History of drama of any medium was Yoda. But the point is that if you dial 911, they'll be late. If they come on time, they'll be incompetent. If they come on time and they're incompetent, they will be in cahoots with the bad guy. And if none of those, then it's because you've gone along the sliding scale. And if your villain is super, super, super competent and has an endless supply of henchmen who are willing to slaughter, you know, their friends and neighbors and fellow citizens and die in order to further the cause of, of, um, the Joker. If you, if, if you have all those things, then civilization is allowed to become slightly more competent just to provide spear carriers for the good guys. And the most extreme example of this is Independence Day, where the villains are so badass and so terrifyingly strong that the United States government and military are allowed to be good <laughs> and, and competent. And once you see this sliding scale, then I've sort of ruined a lot of movies for you, unless you do what I do. And that is, you go to the movies and you turn various dials down. Like, I, I, I can enjoy modern cinema because I can turn my IQ down, I can turn my logic down, I can turn my plot sense down, I refuse to turn my morality down which is why I started getting enraged with Star Wars. But the, the point is that, uh, you know, Corey is simply wrong here. There is a fundamental economic driver that forces most 
movie producers, directors, and writers down the path that's called the idiot plot is to create reasons to assume that we live in a civilization that is run by fools or corrupt monsters. And this has helped the Limbaugh's and the Foxes and, and, and some crazies on the far left too, who have a vested interest in pushing this nonsense that civilization is incompetent and horrible. These very same movie producers and directors and writers would be incensed if skilled professionals didn't leap to their assistance in real life. Mm-hmm. So some directors, some um, writers take up this challenge and they say, can I keep my heroes in pulse-pounding jeopardy for 90 minutes despite the handicap that they live in a skilled and relatively decent civilization, only some of whose professionals are suborned by the bad guys, only some of whom are incompetent. Mm -hmm. And you see some films in which they actually do that, and it's something called writing. (laughs) So is that the proper function of science fiction? Well, well, good science fiction, in my opinion, one of many traits would be to not deliberately go out of your way to undermine our confidence in civilization, but instead serve as critic for potential failure modes. Mm-hmm. I have nothing against showing us something that could go wrong and having it create disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the great um, self-preventing prophecies, the reason why I'm alive right now talking to you, were science fiction stories like Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove and On the Beach, terrifying, horrible situations in which humanity screws up. And therefore, the lesson is, this did not have to happen. Mm-hmm. I believe the fundamental premise of science fiction is a rebellious premise that violates every single tenet of Joseph Campbell because it says children can learn from the mistakes of their parents, not that they will. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, the classic, uh, you're Greek, you, you, you've read uh, Oedipus. Which playwright wrote Oedipus? Was it Aristophanes, by any chance? Aristophanes, yes. I think Aeschylus did one also. Um, No, Aeschylus was too sunny. Um, The point is, if you read Oedipus, or any classic Greek tragedy that follows the rhythms that uh, Aristotle described in the Poetics, you see... The hero, you weep because the hero is like a gaffed, hooked and gaffed fish, wriggling against inexorable fate and nothing can be done. Well, I weep when, when I watch it. It's magnificent. But all I want to do is leap onto the stage, put a bullet through his head, then spin the, then put another bullet back in the revolver and go hunting gods. 
And I wrote a story about that called The Loom of Thessaly that people can acquire through my website. Mm-hmm. It's a different attitude that was conveyed beautifully in some lowbrow sci-fi television like Hercules, Xena, Buffy. The notion that it is now within our purview to say, what rules? What is this rule that says, I have to put up with fate? Now, a far more devastating tragedy is Neville Shoots on the Beach or Dr. Strangelove, in which you say, this did not have to happen. This was us. This was our choice. And therefore, the lesson is, you readers out there, you watchers of Soylent Green, for example, do better than this. And that brings up my big complaint about James Cameron's avatar, <laughs> which, which is, he meant to do that. His heart is in the right place. I totally applaud this brilliant, brilliant person who needs some guys around him to point out exactly what it is that he's saying. And because he did dances with Smurfs, um, I'm so, very, very tall Smurfs, uh, no, Avatar, that's right, that's its title. Because, because he said it in the future instead of the present or the past, he created a poison. Because his lesson is not that people can make mistakes and therefore avoid this mistake, but that our descendants who had watched Avatar and who had benefited from each generation's moral improvements as we benefited from the improvements of Jefferson and then the subsequent improvements of Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, then the subsequent improvements of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, that this process was doomed and you're going to have a horrible 1860s level mentality when we go to some other star system. The basic lesson that he preaches, that he thinks he's preaching in Avatar is, wise up, do better, don't be like this. What he's actually preaching, and the message that gets through is, give up. You're horrible. Maybe one or two of you will occasionally go native. <laughs> but basically, you're horrible. Give up. And, and it would take five minutes of director's cut changes in the beginning of that movie to change that whole point and move it in the direction that I think he wanted Avatar to mean. But you, you see, I guess what I'm saying is I take this stuff seriously. When I was the lead prosecutor in a book um, called Star Wars on Trial, and there it is, <laughs> and it's hilarious. We couldn't use any Star Wars figures in the uh, because they're copyrighted. They're all copyrighted, yeah. But he's he's not copyrighted. <laughs> you can use George. <laughs> you okay. can, uh, I was the prosecuting attorney, and um, one of his novelizers, was, uh, Matthew Woodring Stover, was the um, defense, defense attorney. Yes, and we called witnesses for various 
accusations, uh, pro and con. It's one of these wonderful smart pop, uh, guerrilla, uh, intellectual raids on popular culture. Um, one of the defenses, uh, when I, when I show the logical corners that they dug, that, that Lucas dug himself into, and some of the evil things he preaches, was chill, it's just a flick. But if it's just a flick, why do you take the moral pretenses that are lectured again and again and again in the film so seriously? You can't use that. If you're trying to make a moral point and influence millions, then it is legitimate to discuss what it is you're actually saying. Let me grab that point right here and see if we can use it and move forward in a way, because our time is advancing and I still want to put about 15 to 20 minutes talking both about your book Existence and the Technological Singularity. But I also want to take that theme of morality and ethics, which is very dear to me, and see how we can weave it into our conversation by perhaps asking you, do you feel that ethics in general is kind of forgotten nowadays, that people have rarely uh, look through those ancient principles, which in my view are more or less eternal or constant. The, the, the main issues and the main questions are more or less uh, uh, the same and just the, the, the context changes, it seems to me, at least up to now. And do you think that there's any benefit to our future if we bring forth more ethics in our political and daily, even human discourse? And maybe science fiction, too. Well, I disagree with a great deal of what you just said. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, the, um, look, I'm on the, I mean, I'm, I'm on the Institute for Ethics in, um, and Emerging Technologies. I'm uh, at, at the Center for Ethics um, here in um, San Diego. Um, I'm involved in the creation of the new uh, Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UCSD, mm-hmm. and I hope I hope people will uh, check in um, and Google it in about six months because it's going to be a wonderful thing dedicated in honor of uh, Arthur Clarke, who took ethics very seriously. And I deeply disagree with what you said on several levels. First okay. off, I believe that human there is a thing called human progress. I believe that we try hard to create situations in which our children are better than us, and my children are better than me, as I believe I am morally superior to um, the greatest generation of World War II who took for granted horrible assumptions of racism while thinking of themselves as very ethical people. I do not believe in so-called eternal human verities. This has been a cudgel used against science fiction uh, in the literature departments um, by crypto-Marxist uh, smarmy stupid lit profs uh, <laughs> for a hundred years disparaging science fiction. Um, I believe that there are some things that are common themes as we move forward, but our children are supposed to be better than us. And they're supposed to be the people who will be able to make Star Trek. Um, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll look at the, our musings about things like the, um, uh, non-interference directive in Star Trek. And they'll say, 
wow, that was a step forward from the science fiction of a previous generation that was, you know, rapaciously colonize everything. But we now know better than the non-interference directive because we're more subtle, we're more complicated. We know more about the universe and its con- And our children will know more than that. Therefore, we're not going to lock it in stone. Look, the only civilization that took this approach, instead of priests uh, raging ex-cathedra assumptions about uh, constancy and ruling, you know, any any uh, diversion of thought to be punishable by burning at the stake, like they did to Giordano Bruno. Um, one of my past lives, and that boy, that hurt. Ha ha. The um, this was invented to a large extent whole cloth in your homeland. Uh, I recommend that anybody out there should pick up Thucydides and read the greatest gift that Thucydides gave us, which was his interpolated but nevertheless honest. Um, conveyance of Pericles' funeral oration, which... In the Peloponnesian it, War. Yes, which basically <laughs> is like you're, you're, it's like you're, you're listening to Ben Franklin, like you're, like, like it's Abraham Lincoln before his time, before this experiment could have been done right. I mean, once he was gone, the irony being, the only way the Athenian democracy was able to maintain itself was when it has strong personality to stay calm down, calm down, calm down. Um, And when he was gone, they didn't calm down. But we're trying it again. Just as we're rebuilding the Tower of Babel. Again. Because we have all these wonderful tools that make the scattering of languages insignificant. It's no barrier. Mm-hmm. And if you read the story of the Tower of Babel, you realize God was not angry. I mean, this is a guy who drowned the planet and sent fire down on cities. If he was angry, he would have sent down fire. Instead, he says something very interesting. He says, look at them. They are capable of anything. If this continues, nothing will be beyond them. And then he says calmly, let's stir them up, let's confuse them, let's scatter them, let's make them work hard, let's make them go through an apprenticeship, let's make them suffer and deal with diversity because they all have one language now. But we're coming back together again after all that suffering. Mm -hmm. And we're rebuilding the tower to the sky. And the tower might be the singularity. And this takes us back to your basic concept, and that is that this may be the old dream. This may be foreordained. We may be picking up our tools. You know, Einstein said that the most puzzling thing to him, the most amazing thing to him, was that it appeared that the laws of nature were so decipherable. He said it was as if the door into God's creation workshop was left unlocked, open a crack with the lights on. And and the experiments bubbling on the bench 
for us to get burned, but to learn from. Think about this. If you were a creator, which kind of prayer would you enjoy the most? Oh, you're so big. Oh, you're so great. Please don't crush us. Oh, you're so big. It's like Monty Python. Stop it. On the other hand, Young chemistry student in high AP chemistry in high school, doing a titration that she had calculated the night before, and having it all fall out, and having her say, "Oh, oh, that's neat." Thank you. I uh, I was rather proud of it when I thought of that. It's <laughs> so good of you to notice. The Greeks called it Eureka, I think. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, Archimedes. The, the, the point is, well, actually, I, I gave that about how extropians, posthumanists, singularitarians, they're the smart guys, right? Well, you can spend some time and read the freaking Bible. Because if you do, you will be far better able to use metaphors to talk to your neighbors. I have done these riffs about the Tower of Babel and about the expulsion from Eden and all that with fundamentalist Christians, challenging them. And I have always found, showing them that the book of Revelation is absolutely anathema to everything else in the Bible and should be abandoned because it's hateful. And I have always found, always, that they are more friendly to me when the conversation is over than less friendly to me. Because I spoke to them in terms they could understand. I related science to cultural things they could understand. You singularitarians out there, you're supposed to be the smart ones. And this is important. You can't ignore these people. They can burn you at the stake. And they will if you treat them with the same contempt that Giordano Bruno treated them in the 1600s, with the same contempt that you are treating them to now. You're the smart ones. I, I, this is all done in a speech at the uh, October, I think it was 2010 um, or 20... Summit. And it's a video that you guys can get through yeah. my website. It's worth Singular watching. I watched it Summit. as a preparation for this interview, yeah. And, you know, it's me at my most extravagant, instead of the modest, retiring, and um, and uh, self-effacing fellow who you've had for the last hour, who uh, would never, ever plug his books. This is the 3D cover that... that that um, Orbit gave the um, gave the British edition in um, in in the UK. So so now that we're kind of um, towards the the latter part of our interview here, for sure, uh, I, I I hope to come back with a couple of sentences, a little more on on the singularity. But let's move on to your book for now. Tell us a little bit more about existence, what it is all about, and why did you write it, and what did you try to accomplish with it. Well, existence is um, is one of my near future novels. That's um, like Earth. That's uh, set in the very near time frame. Um, in other words, a lot of people reading it now will live to that era. Twenty fifty, I think, right? Right. And what happens? 
Well, there's a lovely uh, trailer, video trailer for it that has fantastic, wonderful artwork by the great artist, um, web artist Patrick Farley. I will uh, attach it to our interview, by the way. Right, right. Uh, in any event, when you, if you were to bring yourself from 30 years ago to today, that self would spend half the time saying, well, we never thought of that. And the other half saying, you're still doing that? <laughs> and it's that mix of wonder and competence and breakthroughs in ethics combined with horrible, stupid obstinacy that features our world today that the world of 30 years ago would have seemed to the world 30 years before that. And if you're going to show the world years from now, you have to try to catch that sense of frustration and ebullience and taking things for granted. Mm -hmm. Well, in existence, um, I deal with the fact that and as an astronomer, I've been involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, and I'm the fellow who's cataloged more than 100 explanations for the Fermi paradox, why we appear to be alone. And in existence... I, I deal with that to some degree because the Fermi Paradox is all about all the ways in which we might fail. Because these might be the, the pitfalls, the quicksand pits, the mines in the minefield that have kept the universe empty because other races have failed. And that may be why we don't hear anybody out there. And might we be the first to be smart enough to cross the minefield of existence? Um, or, or might we instead be better served by taking um, a plan B that's offered to us? An offer arrives, a message in a bottle, a possible hope, but a guard hope, a dangerous hope, a worrisome hope. Uh, and, and so that's the thread that carries this complex and challenging novel forward, although, you know, if you look at the back of every one of my novels, there's 50 names of people I circulate the manuscripts to, and one of the number one things is not to forget my job as a storyteller. In other words, to keep the protagonists in pulse-pounding jeopardy for 550 pages. Yeah, uh, I have to say, as someone who actually read the book uh, this summer, as soon as it came out, I think I bought it uh, the first day it was out. Because originally we were supposed to do that interview then, and then I had a concussion, so I had to delay it. But uh, one of the first thing you notice is that it's a humongous book, and and you know in an era where people are going for smaller, for what they call Kindle-sized books of maybe 50, 100 pages, 200 at the most, you easily double and triple that average amount. And not only do you double and triple in size, but I would also call in terms of complexity and in terms of depth that you go to. So first, your plot is absolutely multi-layered from a number of different and often opposing per perspectives. Um, and then you bring a number of other disciplines, economics, politics, sociology, anthropology, uh, morality, cosmology, artificial intelligence, and you mix it in such an amazing and accessible way that... It's Two ideas for every page, I promise. But ex enough explosions to keep things going. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. All right. That's very well put. So um, so what, what else then should we say about that book before we move on? I mean, I personally recommend that people read it. I enjoyed it tremendously. 
Well, uh, it, it, the, the book uh, violates this new principle about um, the Kindle era, but I do have a large number of short stories and essays that have been bringing in a lot of <laughs> helping pay for my co- kids' college education in these 99-cent uh, Kindle and other um, uh, packets, this nice tidy packets that people like mm-hmm. these days. Um, but I think one can do both. It's just like my website, davidbrin.com, breaks the rules of web design absolutely top to bottom. It's filled with stuff. If you go down the left side, you click and you find your way into whole topic areas. Uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, space, science, transparency. Um, uh, what, what can I say? I, I had very bad dentistry when I was a kid. And I pick up radio signals from every possible direction. <laughs> and the only way I can get rid of them is by taking this stuff and, and getting it out through my fingers. And, and fortunately, this civilization is willing to pay me to do it. That's a, that's a very fortunate position that you're in. Um, now let me, let me ask you, we're coming to the last couple of questions, the, the one that you already answered, but maybe we should repeat it. What's the best place for people to go and find more about what you do, your work and your books? Well, you know, my website, as I said, davidbrin.com is a bit daunting to the modern eye because you're used to having the web rule being kits, keep it simple, stupid, but I can't do that. I mean, just so much stuff so if you click on a category it'll open up these wonderful scoopits that um i think are better than pinterest that actually let you then subdivide into whatever category whatever topic um interests you and um i'm arrogant enough to opine or discuss or do journalism about almost anything uh if you challenge me, I guess I'll do underwater macrame. Um, <laughs> interest of me, but the singularity is of great interest because the, the, it, it really pushes the Fermi paradox. It pushes the question of uh, if it's so easy, where is everybody out there? Uh, and there are all sorts of. I've cataloged more than a hundred explanations to the Great Silence. People have a tendency to glom onto just one, and they say that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consider my role to say uh, we don't know. I, I, I catalog them. There's about 20 that are seem plausible. There's another 20 that seem plausible if they work together with some others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but there's a hundred that are physically possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is that once we achieve the singularity, we get sucked into a honeypot of inner reality where we dive into inner space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's plausible until you realize that all you need is one starship crewed by hell's angels who don't want that. They want physical reality. And they make one colony out there. Well, that colony is going to be inhabited by the descendants of hell's angels. And they'll probably make more starships. Uh, and, and so we're back exactly where we came from. I don't know if that's uh, as, as singularity relevant as you as you guys want, but but I've got a number of um, podcasts and essays about so, for instance, immortality. Do we really want it? 
do we, um, it, it, you know, that's, that's a, that would be a whole topic. Uh, David, we're approaching about the full hour here, so I'd like to ask you, if there's a single message, perhaps the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? I guess it goes back to full circle to how we started, and that is we are trained and raised to be egotists. The um, Our bodies fizz with egotistical notions. This is going to surprise you because I'm sure I give the impression from this conversation that I am probably the most egotistical person <laughs> that they have ever witnessed. On I wouldn't say so myself. Well, all right, fine. But uh, I'm in the running at least, right? Um, the point is... <laughs> The point is that there comes a point where you have to realize that in the grand scope of things across 13.7 billion years, across 6,000 years of human civilization, across a 250-year enlightenment that finally freed us from the horrors of the pyramid-shaped social structure, to getting to this diamond-shaped structure in which people can argue and jerks you know, if they want to, and, 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 and the 1% of them that's got a good idea might distill and float out through the shit. Put against the context of all of that, do I really matter that much? Sure, I'm going to take care of my kids, absolute first and foremost. They're better than I am anyway. Their friends are better than I am. The greatest accomplishment of the baby boomers has been this new generation of much calmer, more sensible, less self-righteous, wonderful, wonderful kids. But even that, when you get right down to it, what would you die for? And that's the question that I raise in, in The Postman, and it depresses me that the singularitarians and transhumanists seem to frantically avoid this notion in their quest to absolutely live forever. Look, if you guys succeed and I'm helping, I'm helping, I'm rooting for you, okay? If I download into, I think John Smart's got it right, forget the cryonics this, that will be plasticized head that will be on my kid's a mantelpiece with a, a automatic, you know, AI, quasi AI thinks that, hey, it's getting dusty over here, you know, <laughs> nagging them to download me and those things. Look, I, I'm egotistical and I, and I'm afraid of death enough that all of that's good, but I know what's important. And what's important is not me and it's not you. It's us. And here's the irony. You plasticize your head. You cryonicize your head. You cryonicize your body. You, 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 you pray to Saint Kurzweil that, that, that they're going to solve all these things in, in, in time to give you immortality. Let's say you get stored away and a future generation can unload you. Maybe into a robot body. Maybe into a new body. Maybe into cyber paradise. Why will they bother? Why would they want to? You can try to be as interesting as you can. You can yammer for the singularity if you can. But if you're not 
joining all the organizations that you can join. Like, you know, I, I have an essay about this. Look it up. David Brent Proxy Power. The thing that's easy to do to help save the world is to join ten organizations that you each ag you agree with each of them, and then their professionals will go fight to save the world for you. It's a lazy man's way of spending 50 bucks on 10 different organizations, being a member, and feeling virtuous that now you've hired people to save the world for you. If you're not doing that, you're evil and you're part of the problem, quite frankly. That's minimal. But here's the point. Why would anybody in the future want to download you or resurrect you? Unless you tried. Unless you tried every day, a little bit, to help make their world a rich, sane, and ethical utopia that would then feel behooved to download you. I got a little more complicated. I got a little luxury. I got a little preachy. You asked. <laughs> I, I have to say I really enjoyed it, and I think that's an excellent place to to call it off and call it a day and stop and and for people like me, ponder about all those things that you've just mentioned. So, David Brin, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Socrates. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, um, all you open-minded types out there who hung around putting up with this until the bitter end. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>